0: The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is that in the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we start a, a new series of messages to take us through the summer uh, called God's Wisdom. And uh, I'm looking forward to this because I think we all, uh, we all admire wise people, don't we? we? We want to be around wise people. And I think we want to be around them because we're hoping that their wisdom might rub off on us at least a, a little bit, because we realize uh, how much we do need wisdom. The longer you live, uh, the longer you realize, wow, I need wisdom. Uh, we, we, we face so many things in our lives where we need wisdom. It starts probably, I think we begin to realize that when we start getting into relationships, maybe as teenagers, do I, do I keep dating this person? Do I go out with this person It will transcend into "Do I marry this person?" And then when you're married, it will pop up over and over again. Is this the time when I bring up this subject with my spouse that uh, I need to talk to them about? And it's hard, and they're not going to like it, and it may create an argument. And is this and how do I say it exactly? You know, wisdom. I mean, how much wisdom do we simply need? Just in our marriage relationships or in our interpersonal relationships or if we have children, the amount of wisdom that we need because every child is different. One Sunday, they're happy to go out to Covenant Cove and the other Sunday, they're balling when it's time to go out to Covenant Cove, right? I mean, we just need wisdom. Do I buy this house or that house? Do I get this car or that car? Do I... Uh, really tell my boss what I think about his idea, (laughs) or do I keep my mouth shut? And if I do tell him, how do I tell him so that it's actually productive? So many different ideas about wisdom. I mean, when Mike Myers shows up, do I run to the well-lit area where the police are having dinner, or do I run to this dark cemetery where nobody can see me, right? I mean, wisdom is everywhere in life. We need it. And it seems like teenagers run to the cemetery. It's chose to show you why the book of Proverbs is so important. We need wisdom, especially when we're younger, but even when we're older. The basic meaning of wisdom, biblically, biblically, that word wisdom means skillful. It's skill and expertise so that something beautiful or excellent occurs as a result. You see the word wisdom used in this way throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Exodus, when Moses is gathering people together to build the tabernacle, we read this. Moses said to the people of Israel, "'See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, "'the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, And he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill. This is the Hebrew word translated to other places, wisdom. He has filled him with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze. So wisdom, as it relates to life then, is skill and expertise and insight into our daily life and our daily world applied so that, as a result, we end up with a beautiful, good life. Wisdom is skill applied to our everyday life so that we end up with a good life, a beautiful life. None of us woke up this morning voting to have a cruddy life, right? We all want a good life beautiful life. We want it for ourselves. We want it for our children and our grandchildren and our family members. We want a beautiful life. Clearly, this is something that everyone wants. That's why Oprah is so popular. And all of the self-help industry is so profitable in, in our world. And so when we look for wisdom to give us this beautiful life, this good life, the skills necessary, there are two options before us. There is the world's wisdom and there is God's wisdom. We are surrounded with the world's wisdom. And the world's wisdom is not all wrong or bad, but it is qualitatively different at its source. At its source, at best, the world's wisdom is 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 a result of human observation that has been affected by God's common grace, but at its worst, it's according to the Apostle James, it's demonic. James says in to the Christians and the early Christians who were facing different issues in chapter three, he says that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's just not God's wisdom. This is the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. God's wisdom is revealed in his word, especially the word that took on flesh, Jesus, who walked among us, And here's the thing about God's wisdom, about finding it, about knowing it and living in it. God's wisdom leads us into this comprehensive, all-encompassing, life-transforming relationship with him. And his wisdom, which we receive through this relationship, touches every aspect of our lives, and of our world. So right from the outset, as we begin this study and look into this idea of God's wisdom, I want us to to have this basic thought in mind that God's wisdom is so encompassing that it is worldly and otherworldly at the same time. God's wisdom is worldly and otherworldly at the same time. And now that can sound negative because sometimes the word worldly is negative. But what you're going to see is that God's wisdom is infinitely practical, touching every aspect of our lives, where we live, in the nitty gritty of our world. It is exceptionally worldly, real. It's not esoteric theory, it's practical. It's it's in the trenches with us. And yet at the same time, it's otherworldly because it is eternally true and good and right. So to understand all this, let's just jump right in to maybe the most famous of the wisdom books in the Bible, the book of Proverbs. And this morning, we're looking at the prologue of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter one, the first seven verses. Let's begin by looking at the context of God's wisdom in verse one, Proverbs. Now we have Proverbs in the English language. Most of us understand what a proverb is. It is a, a soundbite. It is a short, memorable s- statement of something that is true, or it is maybe a reminder of something that is you know like good common sense. Uh, like, look before you leap. Great, good. That's a proverb. Good common sense. Look before you leap. Or, a, a penny saved is a penny earned. Or, never trust a skinny chef. Something like that, right? Proverbs. We all understand what they are, and we get the idea behind them. Biblical Proverbs are similar to our Proverbs, but they are much, much more. Verse 1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, the book of Proverbs, uh, people around the world, Christian and non-Christian alike, they come to the book of Proverbs, and they treat it, like all the rest of the self-help manuals and literature that is out in our world today. Even Christians, they'll read it, maybe read a proverb a day. And what ends up happening is we end up cherry picking a verse here or there for their current need. And this isn't the way to read the book of Proverbs. The, the, The Proverbs the book of Proverbs and all of the Proverbs and all of the wisdom books and the wisdom literature that is throughout, sprinkled throughout the Bible is meant to be read within the context of God's overarching story that he's writing, the entirety of Scripture. The Bible, as a reminder, the Bible is God's story where he is redeeming his people through the promised seed. Starts in Genesis, right? Genesis chapters one, two, and three. He promises this seed that will come. And the entirety of scripture is the outworking of this story. In the first five books, the law, God reveals his character and his attributes and who he is in that sense of the word in our own sinfulness. In the historical books, he expands his story by through narrative and telling us the, the story that he's writing through Abraham and his family and the, the Israelites and the kings, two of the most famous are in the prologue, David and Solomon. And then you have these prophetic books. And in the prophetic books, God is writing his story and we hear his voice as he's calling his people to repentance, to obey, the covenant that they have agreed to obey, but now they have, they're disobeying and judgment is coming or judgment has come and the prophet's voice from God is saying, repent so that the judgment may be lifted and you can experience the mercy and the grace of God. But then within this story, you have the poetic books. And this is where we're gonna be this summer is in the poetic books because and then in the poetic books, you have the book of Psalms. And Psalms has some wisdom literature in it. It has some chapters that you would say, this is the wisdom genre in it. But, it, but the poetic books has specifically four wisdom books in it. The book of Job, the book of Proverbs, where we're reading this morning, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon four explicit wisdom books in the Bible, three of which are written by Solomon, King Solomon. And this makes sense because if you know anything about the Old Testament and the story of the nation of Israel and the story that God has written, when Solomon took over the nation of Israel from his daddy, King David, God asked him, what would you have from me? I'll give you whatever you would want. Almost like, you know, I'll give you one wish. What's your wish? And Solomon asked for wisdom, And the, the Old Testament reveals that his, solemn, his wisdom was so great that the dignitaries from around the known world would come to him to learn from him and to, to experience the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man to have lived apart from Jesus. He wrote thousands of Proverbs and he was a Renaissance man in so many ways. Now, so Psalms has some of these Wisdom chapters in them, but they're not. It's not a wisdom book. The, The Psalms is different. The Psalms has all of this emotion of God's people as they're living in God's story, and so you have rejoicing from God's people, and then you have them worshiping God, and you have their emotional response as they fail and sin, and are discouraged and are depressed, and they're struggling as they live inside of God's story. And so Psalms, the reason why we like it so much is we, we understand it. It's, it's, we relate to it at the emotional level. The wisdom books are very different, though. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. One author you know, likened it to a, to a symphony or, different, or to music and different kinds of music said that, you know, Job and Ecclesiastes would be like one of these heavy, somber German operas. You know, like a Wagner, you know, very dark and heavy. Um, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, it's like a light, you know, love song. Like, that, like the sound of that phone right there, right? Perfect timing. That's Song of Solomon right there, baby. We got it going on, okay? Um, But Proverbs, Proverbs is like a piano lesson. Proverbs is like a piano lesson. This is where you learn your notes and your scales and, and how to play and all of the basics of music. That's what, if you're putting it in musical terms. Proverbs is the basics of life. Derek Kidner is known as a, as a scholar of the, of the wisdom books, and he says the wisdom books are where spiritual uh, pilgrims are free to stop and take a look around within God's story, to make observations and to scratch our heads and ask our questions because we don't completely understand what we're experiencing. He writes this about the book of Proverbs. He says, it is a book which seldom takes you to church. Isn't that a great line? Proverbs is a book that seldom takes you to church. In fact, it so seldom takes you to church that many people have questioned, is God even in this book? I mean, how is this even a Christian book? Do you even need it in the Bible? It could just be a separate little book. Like its own figure of wisdom, it calls across to you in the street about some everyday matter or points things out at home. Its function in scripture is to put godliness into working clothes. What a great line. Its function in scripture is to put godliness into working clothes. The Proverbs of Solomon were written to, to, for young men who are really basically aristocratic young men who were being trained for royal service in the government and in the palace. These Proverbs, like all of the wisdom books and all of the wisdom literature, are meant to be received by God's people. They're God's revelation meant for God's people, meant to be received within the context of God's covenant community, within God's overarching story. There's a worldliness to them. Can't get away from it. There's a worldliness to them. There's a practical working clothes godliness as as Kidner puts it. But at the same time, there's this other worldliness to them. At the very same time, they are Proverbs and chapters and books and verses that are contained within God's overarching story, which means we must read them and understand them in that context, in the context of the gospel. The wisdom of the Proverbs find their fulfillment in Christ who Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter one is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the the Colossians, in Colossians chapter two, he tells us that, he reminds us that Christ is God's mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So God's wisdom is both worldly and otherworldly at the same time, and to understand it, we have to read it within the context of this overarching, story which is culminated in Jesus Christ so we don't cherry pick the Proverbs and cherry pick the wisdom literature and apply it to the problem that I'm having with my child right now we take it within the entirety of scripture and apply it to the problem or to how I want to discipline or how I want to be married or whatever the situation in life is so there's the context of God's wisdom. There's the complexity of God's wisdom. Now, you'll notice that Solomon doesn't actually, in these seven verses, define God's wisdom for us. In fact, in the entire book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, Solomon nowhere defines for us God's wisdom. Instead, what he's doing in the book of Proverbs especially is he uses all these different words, associated words that act like a, um, they, they paint a mosaic for us. That, uh, they paint a picture for us so that we, we get a better understanding a, of, of the multifaceted aspect of God's wisdom, the complexity of God's wisdom. Um, one author calls all of these words in, the prologue. In these seven verses, there are numerous words that are essentially uh, like synonyms for God's wisdom. They are all words that when you unpack them, they all speak to helping us understand what God's wisdom is. And, And so one author calls these words weighty wisdom words. Weighty words of God's wisdom, and think of it like a kaleidoscope. You, you know how you look through a kaleidoscope and you turn it, and and the, the different you know lenses change the picture. But it when you put it all together, it makes this beautiful picture, and it's. It's, it changes as you shift it, but it's all one unified whole. That's what all of these words do. And Solomon is introducing these words to us in the prologue. And what you're going to see is you read through the book of Proverbs. And as we go through sermons that come out of the book of Proverbs, you're going to see all of these words in the prologue show up over and over and over and over and over again throughout the book. And all of them are being used to help us get a picture and a better understanding of what God's wisdom is and why we need it so much and how we obtain it. Verse two reveals the the two primary goals that God wants to accomplish in us through his wisdom. Verse two says to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight. There's two goals there. The first goal is holy character. It's moral, holy, godly character. And it's in that first phrase, to know wisdom and instruction. Now, we already noted that wisdom is skillful living that produces a beautiful life. But this beautiful, this is a life that is to live, be lived, as we saw in the first portion, in the context of God's covenant community. This is Solomon writing to the Israelites. This is the covenant people of God. So the beautiful life is in the context of God's covenant community. So a beautiful, good life, a wise life is a good, a skillful life that brings about a beautiful, good life. A beautiful, good life is a godly, moral life. In the book of Proverbs, it's the person who lives skillfully. More wisely, and as a result, they are producing something that is of lasting value to God and to the covenant community. Their life is beautiful, blessing to the covenant community, and it glorifies God. That's the wise life. That's wisdom. Okay, that's wisdom. So, one goal is to have a life of that quality, the more that's what God's wisdom is seeking to accomplish. A beautiful life and instruction brings about this moral quality. Instruction is training. It's the training that corrects folly, sin. It's the discipline that has to be applied to the seat of education to our children. (laughs) The board of discipline to the seat of education to drive out folly as we will see in certain verses. It's that discipline that comes into our lives by God that is meant to foster integrity. So the entire first goal, the first half of verse two, which is the first goal of God's wisdom, deals with God, uh, developing godly character in us. Godly character, good character. First goal, good thinking, right thinking. That's the second goal of godly wisdom to understand words of insight. This is, this is discernment between right and wrong, good and better, better and best, wise and foolish, dumb and dumber. Okay, that last part, I just couldn't resist that part. But anyway, you get the idea. So the, the goal of God's wisdom in us is to accomplish something that is very worldly and very otherworldly. Otherworldly, holy character, like the image of Jesus Christ. Very worldly, you can make smart decisions in your life. You can be a good thinker who makes decisions that bring about good in your life and in the world. Now why wouldn't everyone want this? Why wouldn't everybody look at the book of Proverbs and jump right in, and yet so much of the book of Proverbs is like, I, I know you boys aren't gonna do this. You know, you can hear the voice of a father to his son saying, you knuckleheads, you're just not listening to me, are you? You're not listening to me. Why, why don't we wanna listen? The answer's in these other words. Verse three, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Verse six, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The training, the discipline for wisdom, it's hard. It's difficult. Who among us likes to be disciplined? No, we don't. It's antithetical to who we are. To receive instruction in God's characteristics of righteousness, justice, and equity. Church, this is contrary to our human nature. We, we don't want to be taught in righteousness and in justice. God's righteousness, God's justice. We're okay to be taught in human concepts of justice and equity and righteousness, but in, and especially if we can make it up on our own terms, but, but God's standards, n- no. We rebel against this because of our sin nature. Our natural pride rebels at the humiliation of being considered simple. I mean, look at that verse right here to to give prudence to the simple. I mean, how many of you like to be considered simple? No, we don't like that word. We don't wanna be thought of as somebody who can't figure out what the proverb means, the riddle. I'm smarter than that. And everything in these verses calls for a humility that we aren't born with and we rebel against it. And so as a result, rather than becoming wise, we become defensive and we scoff rather than admit or we fake it like we know it when we really don't. And we will go the way of the fool rather than be humble enough to receive the instruction that leads to life. That's the natural state of humanity. This was certainly true for the young man of Solomon's day to whom he was primarily writing, but let's face it, most of us can relate. Who of us, how many of us, wish that we could dial the clock back and have a do-over on a decision that we were so certain about when we were young and we made it and we were absolutely convinced that this was the right thing. And the only time, you know, through time, we realized that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. We've all been there. But when we were at that age in our lives, man, we knew it all, didn't we? I mean, we just were not, I mean, let's, to be honest, a know-it-all attitude, a superiority complex, this is a common characteristic of young adults. It is. But it's not limited to teenagers and 20 somethings, is it? Not at all. It's not limited to guys who are in the prime of their life. And that's why verse five is included. So we have the the context of God's wisdom, the complexity of God's wisdom. And then in verse five, the call to pursue God's wisdom, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Now Solomon is including the older folks, the folks who actually do have wisdom. Maybe you learned it the hard way, maybe you learned it because you weren't proud and arrogant and you were humble and you've been walking with God, but you're older now and Solomon says, hey, 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 hey. This isn't just for, the, for my young sons who are hard hit knuckleheads, who are, have natural, their sinfulness that leads them to think they just, you know, the, the old, I mean, we all think our parents don't know anything, right? We, it's just, it's amazing that that time in your life when you all of a sudden look at your parents and you realize how much smarter they are than what you thought they were, right? And we all go through those, that maturation process. I mean, that's natural part of life. And he's writing to them, those young people, but but he's also writing to those of us who are older and empty nesters. He says, increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. I love that word guidance. It's a nautical word. I like all the words in the Bible that have anything at all to do with fishing. <laughs> You know, it helps me justify my hobby. Um, Anyway, uh, but in this case, he's talking about sailors. And you know how specifically sailors would take the rope and they would pull the rope and adjust the ropes in order to, to steer the very best course in the wind and in the storm in order to capture that wind and make their way through that storm and get to port in the best, quickest way possible. It's a great nautical word. And he uses it here. For older folks, because life doesn't get less complicated as you get older. Life gets more complicated, doesn't it? Why is that? Life doesn't become easier when your hair turns white. It actually gets harder. And and so Solomon says, white-headed people need to pursue God's wisdom too. Even though you already have wisdom, we need more wisdom. And the reason why, is first and foremost, because the more we live for God, the harder the challenges, the trials and the tribulations become. And the harder those trials and tribulations become, the more we need God's wisdom to adjust those ropes so that we can set a course through those tribulations and come out the other side in a way that builds God's character and glorifies God in us through those trials. But there's another reason why we need this fresh, tempering winsomeness of God's wisdom. When you, as you get older, it's easy to develop a playbook for life. You've experienced a lot of life and you learn lessons and you kind of have a playbook and you have your rules and your do's and your don'ts. It's, it's kind of, you almost develop a, I've been there, done that, have the scars and t-shirt to prove it kind of attitude, right? And, and as a result, you can start coasting through life, resting on your laurels, resting on your life experience, depending upon yourself. And Solomon is saying, "Hey, this is dangerous because when we stop pursuing God's wisdom, resting on our own laurels and our own experiences, we stop being wise. And instead, what begins to develop within us is a well. Well, we just become calcified, crotchety Christians. That's what happens. That's what happens." Ray Ortland, he writes this. He says, sometimes life is too complex for a simple rule. We need wisdom to fill in the blanks moment by moment and God gives us his wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But we need wisdom for another reason. It is possible to live by all the rules and be ugly about it. We have all known people who were blameless in their way and we disliked them. But wisdom will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Proverbs 4 verse 9. We want Jesus to place that crown on our heads for his sake. Wise Christians and wise churches become radiantly attractive. More people are won for Christ by beauty than by rules. Isn't that true? So there's the... There's the Context, there's the complexity and the call of God's wisdom. There's one final thing from this passage this morning. There is the absolute, non negotiable condition for God's wisdom. Verse 7. Verse seven is the theme of the entire book of Proverbs. It's the motto of the book of Proverbs. In fact, you can make the case that verse seven and the the truth that is here is the theme and the motto of all of the wisdom books in one way or another because it shows up throughout the wisdom books. In fact, this, this idea shows up throughout the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction. Read it out loud with me. Again, ready? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You read this over, this idea over and over, restated in one way or another. Different weighty wisdom words will be used. For example, God speaking to Job says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Remember wisdom, this is skill, that produces a beautiful life. And God says, the fear of the Lord brings the skill that produces a beautiful life. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The Messiah who's promised to the prophet Isaiah, this is how he's described. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, the Messiah doesn't make decisions based upon the surface factors. He has God's wisdom. He looks beneath the surface to what is actually true. And why does he have God's wisdom? Because he has the fear of the Lord. He delights in it. How different is the fool who doesn't? He despises it. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, one way to see it is to look at verse 7. Let's go back to verse 7 here. Sorry. There we go. Hebrew poetry is, it uses parallelism. Parallelism, it'll, it'll be stated in the first part, the first half of the verse. And then the second half, in some way or another, expands or explains the main idea. It might use a metaphor. It might use a simile. Uh, it might use uh, you know, any number of, of, of literary techniques. Sometimes it does it by the way of the opposite, of, of showing you what the opposite looks like. And we have that right here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So think about this from the opposite. Look at the second half of the verse, the parallel, the second phrase. Fools despise. The foolish person despises wisdom, despises the holy character that God is trying to bring about, that skill that brings about a beautiful, holy life, a life that reflects the character of God. That's wisdom, right? That's what understanding of wisdom is. The foolish person despises that, has contempt for that. The Messiah delighted in it. The foolish person despises it. They despise that kind of holy character. He's too proud to submit to the the instruction, to the correction that brings about that kind of integrity. So the fear of the Lord is the opposite of this. The fear of the Lord is a desire to be holy, a humility that accepts correction and discipline and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When someone is walking in the fear of the Lord, they are in a relationship with him. They're living transparently and authentically before him. They're eagerly worshiping him and serving him because of who he is. What is the fear of the Lord? That's a a phrase that so many of us can kind of stumble over. This is how I understand it, for what it's worth. The fear of the Lord is an abiding and reverent sense of God's presence in the world. It's a, it's a, a reverent sense of his lordship over me and my accountability to him. The fear of the Lord is an abiding sense of God's presence everywhere in my world and in my life and his lordship over my life, his ownership of me, that he is the creator and I am the creature and that I'm accountable to him to live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. This is the fear of the Lord. And as this passage points out, the fear of the Lord is the prerequisite to God's wisdom and the beginning of all true knowledge. All knowledge, all truth can be properly understood and properly applied when it is placed under the overarching absolute truth of God and who he is and what he is doing in our world. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, wait a second. People who are not Christians have all kinds of knowledge, not true knowledge. Even Christians, have we we have all kinds of facts, and information that we have gleaned and it's all up in our brain and we may have expertise in a, in a particular area of study and science and we have all of this stuff milling around But the fear of the Lord takes all of that data and all of that expertise and all of that information and it transforms all of that accumulated facts and life skills and intellectual learning into something that brings glory to him and turns us into something that is a beautiful representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is true knowledge. It takes everything you know and puts it under God. And the knowledge of God puts all other knowledge into its proper place. And the way you have that knowledge of God is the fear of the Lord. This knowledge of God, we don't get to make it up. We don't get to invent it ourselves. It comes through God's revelation to us. It comes through the scriptures, for one. Kathleen Nielsen writes that God's revelation to his people is the ground zero of biblical wisdom. And it is from this that we begin to understand who God is and the fear of the Lord begins. When we hear that word fear, I don't know about you, But I think about those times that in the middle of the night, for whatever reason, I've woken up because of a sound, you know, and I think there's somebody in my house. Aren't those the worst? You wake up and your your heartbeat has gone from sleeping, resting, to like 2,000 beats per minute, you know? And it feels like your, your heart's about to come out of your chest, you know, and your adrenaline has spiked, and you, you fall off the ceiling because that's where you're clinging to, you know, and, and there's just there's, there's, you know, all that, that. The fear of the Lord is not mindless terror. Now, now I'm sure if we saw the Lord, there would be some terror, like Isaiah or Moses. But when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, he's not talking about this mindless terror that creates the the fight, flight, or freeze reaction in us. It is this awe of God that changes us because he's revealed himself to us. And the ultimate way that he has revealed himself to us is through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of God's wisdom. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 said that In times past, God spoke through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, who is the exact radiant image of God's glory, who after doing purification for our sins, he ascended into heaven, has sat down at the right hand of God and received a name above all names and over all the angels and every created being, Jesus Christ. And it's because... Jesus endured the terror of the cross that our fear of the Lord is not a mindless terror. And so if you want to begin a journey where you understand and experience the fear of the Lord, it starts right there, knowing Jesus Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God who has the power to save you from your sins, to reconcile you to your creator. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and experiencing the terror of the cross so that the fear of the Lord isn't mindless terror for us, but that instead it can be this reverential, thrilling relationship that we have with our creator because you have redeemed us and reconciled us to him as we go through these passages from the Older Testament this summer, would you let us see a better picture, a more beautiful picture of who you are? Father, would you give us the the wisdom and the insight that we need? Would you transform us and grow us up through these different messages so that we are more like Jesus, full of grace and truth, the very embodiment of your wisdom. Would you do this so that we could have that beautiful life, that life that is good for us, yes, but more importantly, it glorifies you and is good for your kingdom. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.